Welcome back to another episode of Debatable with your hosts Nina and Kyle. I'm Nina. I'm Kyle and this episode is part of our debate analysis series, a series of episodes dedicated to explaining the motions of Debatable Open 2022. The goal of this series is to give debaters a better understanding of the different topics they've encountered if they competed in the tournament and think of those who weren't able to join us a chance to learn from the motions as well. Today, we're joined by Zoe, who gave us our topics for the economics theme of the tournament. Hi, Zoe. Hello, everyone. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me. All right. Um, before we begin, we'd like to ask you how you'd like to introduce yourself to those who might be listening or to those who um, are curious about what you do as well as why um, you like econ particularly. Oh, okay. So basically... um. I'm a management accounting major, so def- definitely like one of my favorite course topics in college is economics. Being like a business major, economics is like a field that we touch constantly, and I definitely enjoyed it like probably much more than accounting. But secondly, I think that I really enjoy debating economic motions as I think like this is probably the only time where I can intersect like the case studies, the lessons, the things that I learned like in my course at some debate rounds and like use it to my advantage and win rounds, I guess. So yeah. Thanks for that. I guess to start things off, we wanted to ask what you think is very important to know about debating economics motions, especially for those that might be very intimidated by these topics overall, because it's one of those topics that alongside international relations, I suppose, it's one of those things that a lot of debaters are like, hmm, I'm not really good at that. I want to avoid those motions. Or I want to pray that if there is an econ motion, I at least know something about it. Mm, yeah. I think that at some point, um, debating economics, I think like, like especially for new debaters, economics cannot like exclusively exist in a specific round under the theme or the banner of economics. I think that it can apply in different themes and contexts and it can be applied through arguments like impacts, extensions, or even like the strategy as to how you approach debate. So like simple uh, concepts of like economics, like incentives, costs and benefits, trade-offs are already an application of like economics in a debate round. Um, but secondly, economics like is a broad uh, discipline and can intersect many disciplines. It can cover health, gender, labor, environment, and even education. But I think like generally, Sigur, like one of my, the main observations I had, this also like goes to my organization. The reason because like they get intimidated probably stems from the initial fear that the motions, uh, especially econ motions, might be requiring like numerical data or unfamiliar economic theories or like jargons that our own education or their own like specialty or didn't teach them at all. So I think like it's important to remember that economics can cover a lot and like like the general things that we do in a debate around like comparatives or like cost benefits are also like an application of like economics already in rounds. So given your background with econ, I can understand why, you know, these would be fun concepts. So what's your approach though when you're from an agcore perspective or a motion contributor perspective? I really want it to be novice friendly as much as possible which means making it less intimidating, especially to those who already feel intimidated by economics like motions. But also, I wanted to make sure that the motion that the motion set are highly relevant today so teams can have so much room to give new examples and contexts. I think that all three motions can be debated without requiring like background of economics, but still have a great discussion of, out of it. Like I was inspired in coming up with the labor motion because of like the 2022 elections with the labor running, running for 
presidency. I wanted to have like a remote work motion because there's definitely like a rise of new generation of workers opting to the new work setup. And I wanted to see like how teams would debate like this particular new phenomenon. And for the last motion, I think that it's a motion that relates like the the SMEs. Yeah, the SMEs and the be unveiling of large corporations. I think it's a motion that relates to the current state of our economy today, specifically like the first year of the pandemic. On to the first motion. This House believes that labor unions in developing countries should prioritize pursuing legislative reforms as opposed to direct negotiations with companies in the goal of achieving workers' rights. So when we're talking about workers' rights, what are we exactly talking about here? Like, what would these rights even be? Oh, yeah. Um, specifically, like, if you talk about developing countries and, like, labor rights, the problem is more prevalent there. And especially where, because, like, companies, especially multinational companies, like, outsource labor there for cheaper costs, usually the things that are compromised are the safer conditions or having like a justified minimum wage. So these are things like, these are things that these workers want to strive for, but other benefits such as health, pensions, or like having um, hours, like being able to negotiate their hours or leave, or like ways to balance their work and family or those particular things. I think that these are things that are covered under what are they fighting for in these particular labor unions in these countries. So given that this debate asks you to compare two things, right? It's about prioritization because you can't have both. How would pursuing legislative reforms necessarily hurt negotiations with employers and vice versa? Yeah, um, I think that because of like this particular question, it requires teams to directly take the trade off and like characterize what does pursuing legislative reforms look like and also what does pursuing direct negotiations. And I think for pursuing legislative reforms, it's external in nature. So I think that teams can usually like characterize this by saying that it's basically pouring all your resources through protests, through electing through like electing leaders that represent your interests or you can even like try to gain mass traction for people to pressure your own governments like in opposition direct negotiations can also look like being very internal in nature which means that you don't that you can go on strike but you don't necessarily have to pull your resources to like electing leaders that have no assurance to win or like being able to pour through all of your resources through protests i think that the main difference is that you keep in opposition rather in direct negotiations is that you keep the leverage from companies to work and coordinate with you as opposed to legislation that you put your interests as a labor union um, in opposition to corporations. So I think that particularly this is the clash that I can see um, in the debate, like, yeah, in the debate. So how would you characterize the way that labor unions currently negotiate with employers to get these particular rights? Because I assume that on government, you have to argue or sort of characterize it as something that's problematic. Like, you don't really get the good that you need on that with that policy. So how would you explain it in the debate on government? How do labor unions negotiate with employers? I think that the reason why, Sigur, like the main strategy of like painting out that negotiations don't necessarily work is that ultimately something has to give so I think like number one, you can probably argue that corporations often keep like promises on the short term and then reverse decisions when the spotlight isn't on them. So like this is already like if you take a look at the historical analysis of like probably greenwashing or being like very performative. So I think like that can be like a short term impact that's like very harmful if you opt into negotiations. But secondly, I think that for government, it's also like 
very important to characterize the nature of negotiation and then use it to their advantage. So you can probably argue that the problem with negotiations is that there is compromise. So like hypothetically, right, that if like the workers would want like $5 per hour, but negotiations would mean that they would settle for $3 or $2 and assure, assure, uh, because like ultimately something has to give, right? Or assuming that you get $5, you have to negotiate with companies or like these corporations that, or something like, or probably like your work conditions will stay the same or assuming that you get the $5, right? So I think like in general, negotiations, in negotiations, something has to give. And that trade-off will always come at the cost of your worker suffering, even if like there's some sort of like short-term win. Because again, there is like a power imbalance between the worker and the company. And negotiations will ultimately have to compromise the principles that you're trying to fight for as a labor union. So it's interesting that you mentioned power imbalances because I think that's a big chunk of this debate. So I wanted to ask how exactly employers interfere or exert their power over labor unions in the creation of collective bargaining agreements. I think that the, the how corporations like leverage their power is that they take advantage of like the desperation of their of like the workers themselves or even like the governments in these particular developing uh, states. So they use a lot of their capital in making sure that they that that like a, a lot of the clamors made by their people are silenced or more often than not they usually shell out a lot of money to be able to hide like um figure like a lot of like the controversies that surround it but secondly they can use it as a leverage by simply just saying that oh if you're going to like up for five dollars a three dollar win or a negotiation or like meeting halfway is already probably a win so ultimately the desperate workers or like these workers who are already like trying to survive will still try to bite in the three dollars if that makes sense so basically like these particular the power imbalance exists in a way that these particular corporations will try as much as possible to still uh, to basically like cover save money or like basically um get away with the things that these particular labor unions are trying to fight for. Okay, so that does make sense, but my next question would be what would the benefit be? Like, what would the benefit be if unions pursued changes on the legislative level that you necessarily wouldn't get from collective bargaining? Like, what's the trade-off here? Yeah, I think that, Siguri, like, for government, it's very strategic for government to concede from the get-go that legislative uh, reforms can be a bit longer because, again, it's external. You go through many processes, like, probably electing leaders or, like, even trying to get mass traction if it's, like, we're functioning under a democratic state. But I think that the main burden of government is to provide, even if it's Longer, it's worth the trade-off and prove why direct negotiations are going to be unsustainable. So I think for government to be able to try to argue this is to firstly probably prove the principle behind legislative reforms is that assume that is that you need to be able to pursue legislative reforms because it pushes for like accountability because it's the law, right? It pushes for accountability for corporations in cases that is for for in cases that they won't exploit again. And you can prove the incentive for governments to change legislation because like. Again, they have the incentive to hear the voices of their people because their country is usually high dependent on the workers. So if you take a look at the countries like Bangladesh, where in like a lot of like uh, the big chunk of like their economy is dependent upon like textiles and being able to like manufacture clothes. So like there's a natural incentive for governments to be able to like hear the voices of their people in cases of their extraction because their economy is so dependent on these particular industries. 
But secondly, in principle, this is something that they cannot compromise at the MFA. So I think that the reason why, even if like, even if like, even if like outside of the possible outcome that legislation won't succeed, I think like the principle of being able to protect that, that uh, it's being able to protect the principle of figure protecting your workers, even if like there's no assurances of winning. Because again, this is something that is inherent to what we deserve as workers. So I think like the principle is there, but also like being able to assure that there's no going there are no instances of exploitation that will happen in cases that these particular corporations will like reverse their decision so on the other hand though for opposition what are the problems that you might face if you prioritize legislative reforms because based on the arguments you gave for gov it seems like a pretty good deal for them Mm-mm. for opposition obviously like the the main uh, burden for opposition is to prove like why negotiations are still in the best interest of these workers. Siguro's strategic characterization for this is that like inherently um siguro like workers re- work, the resources of these workers are very limited like there's a power imbalance like you can use the same characterizations by government that there's a power imbalance which means that they need to be able to be they need to they need to allocate their resources as strategic as much as possible. So you can argue this by saying like negotiations is better because at least there is an assurance because if you take a look at government side a lot of their cases is highly dependent on your leader succeeding or being able to like penetrate like the legislative branch right so i think like given that your resources are really low and that probably like these particular developing countries are very corrupt which means that there's a lot of like popular popularity politics or like those people who are in power are far more likely to be like the elites who are benefiting from like the corporations, right? So you can probably argue that like legislation is highly dependent on your leader succeeding. And because of like the nature of developing countries, it probably won't or it will less likely succeed. And because like you invested so much of your resources towards like um external external means of like pursuing legislative reforms. You're go. You're probably going. Uh, you can argue that your resources is going to be like at at a sunk cost, and like you can further analyze this by saying like who gets affected. Um, the people who are far more likely to be affected, especially now that your resources will now be at sunk cost, cost rather will be your workers because now you have exhausted the only capital you have. La- you have you you exhausted the only capital you have for legislation, which should have been enough to raise some leverage for your companies. So like you can even like try to get the example of like government about like the three dollar um hypothetical like having a three dollar negotiation is better than having none at all because even if you get the five dollar even if you like try to strive for the five dollars I think like because uh because of like the nature of developing countries it's very less likely for these particular leaders to succeed so now you don't have necessarily resources. So you can also like argue the the interests of labor unions like which are the workers there ne- which means that ultimately there is like um figure like a principle the principle of survival so you need to be able to have like corporations to be able to work with you in order for you to have like a daily like wage for example and that's not going to happen if you follow opposition because ultimate uh, yeah government rather because then again you're going to be treated you're in government side you can probably argue that um yeah your workers i if the workers on government side might be treated as a liability because like they are fighting against the interests of the corporations as opposed to like opposition you can still be seen as an asset by the company therefore corporations have the incentive to still be nice with you if that makes sense or like cooperate with you so yeah i guess for opposition since we're talking about labor unions typically what they do is they have the union negotiate with the employer to create collective bargaining agreements 
between the union and the employer and that would apply for all the workers there like it will set these are the benefits that you would get etc etc so i guess now the question would be since that's what you're trading off like you're getting these better laws in order to not have collective bargaining agreements anymore on opposition i guess the question would be could those bargaining agreements actually be more beneficial to workers compared to labor standard laws that you would get on government side i think like realistically i think that you can probably attack the process of legislation and prove like that's something that is not in the in, it's not like strategic at all in terms of resources so i think for collective bargaining at least you're still able to get some um benefits out of it and that's more likely to be attainable as opposed to like literally changing the system for legislative like legislative reforms is there any special nuance you can find for developing countries so this was a phrase that i'm sure had intention in the motion so what could teams get from this particular phrase and what nuances can they add for their debate okay so first especially in the context of like developing countries the problem is more prevalent there so they can use like examples or like historical analysis of like labor unions fighting in these particular countries or and like analyze if whether or not they have succeeded or what they have I like or like what they did yeah what they succeeded and what like what are the things that they did that led them to fail so i think that these are things that teams can definitely use in the debate rounds so all of that being said right what extensions outside of the ones you've already discussed can you recommend or can you think of right now hmm. i think what i already discussed was like probably a good um discussion already the principle and pragmatics and i think like generally that's what i think that the debate can revolve around sigur like in terms of extension it i think it's up to the teams to sigur like how they would want to extend it pero i think like that's the main clash talaga sa debate nga na i'm trying i'm looking forward to hearing all right thank you so much so that concludes the first motion so if your team that debated this first motion hopefully that gave you insights on what you could have run and done better um so we're now going to move on to the second motion and this one comes with an info slide so i'll just read the full thing So the info slide says that a white collar worker is a person who performs professional desk managerial or administrative work. So white collar work may be performed in an office or other administrative setting and white collar workers include but are not limited to paths related to government consulting, academia, accountancy and business and executive management. So motion 2 reads therefore assuming feasibility this house as a white collar worker would give up, give up their work benefits and privileges e.g. health insurance, paid leaves, salary increases etc in exchange for permanent remote work. So what I want to ask about this because it's a really interesting motion is that given that the motion talks about white collar workers specifically what would you say is the nuance of these actors like why did you want them to be the main stakeholder in this debate Okay so the reason for like the their main stakeholder being like the white collar worker is that the trend of like remote work right now is specifically towards the white collar industry like tech management consulting um finance or what have you and i guess like it's because a lot of their work revolves around like office lang it's like the laptop being able to like um it, it basically like all of the functions can be done through like virtual setting and i don't think like 
um, blue-collared workers or like like construction workers or like those uh, workers that require physical appearances are included because obviously they cannot do like permanent remote work. So yeah, I also think that this is interesting because there's a lot of discussion that revolves around like people in these particular industries tr- trying to choose like the permanent remote work setting right now because a lot of like tech companies or management companies offer these um setups right now because uh, because like again the because like the pandemic has changed the way we after the pandemic rather it has changed like how we perceive work so yeah i think like it's an interesting discussion as to how like in the lens of a white collar worker then um it's a it's a good i, I think like it's a very great uh, exchange rather if whether or not like the work life balance or being able to like um benefit your career or what have you okay i guess the next question now would be what are these benefits these privileges to begin with like why are they given and what does this actually say about the obligations of the employer to their employees so benefits are like i think this is also crucial for especially governments to be able to characterize this so i think that so uh, um in principle or in like that def- basic definition benefits are like perks offered by like companies in addition to salary So the most common benefits that you can see in like workplace settings are like medical insurances, disability or like life insurances. This can also like be retirement benefits, paid time off or like any other fringe benefits like salary increase or what have you. But I think that also this nature of benefits are very valuable because if you take a look at like let's say medical insurance, medical insurance can cost like thousands of pesos a month and it serves as like one of the deciding factors of like workers entering into a certain job because like your salary can like only reach so much, right? So I think that benefits can make the package or like the worker uh employment benefits really be um very good in terms of being able to persuade uh, people to enter in your company. So given that, right, if you mentioned that they're good to have for a fuller package of employment per se, um, what would you argue is the principal justification, therefore, for being able to exchange these benefits for remote work in the first place? Like, is it commensurate? Everything you're getting and remote work, would you equate them to be the same? Or at least how would government paint that? Mm. So I think that I think for for so first step talaga I think that there needs to be a characterization or like a clear setup of what are the interests of this particular white collar worker and I think that there needs to be an important clarification that on government side assuming that they opt into remote work I think that there needs to be like a clear characterization that opposition must also like um must accept that the worker earns uh, enough to get by even if they opt into permanent remote work so i don't think like a reasonable um, opposition would say that they're going to like probably starve into death so like i think that there needs to be like a uh, uh, there's go- there needs to be like a fair uh, clarification of how much this worker probably earns and this particular wor- worker has uh, is going to earn money enough to get by even in the permanent remote work so but secondly there needs to be like in th- like there needs to be a discussion in the interest of the white collar worker so it can be like the lifestyle given that this is a work debate the worker has to analyze the trade-offs and consequences on what kind of lifestyle that they want to pursue or retirement like after they work what are their goals or it could be attaining work-life balance and i think for government there needs to be a, like the main burden of government is to prove like why permanent work is like the way to go So for government, I think that the general case line for government is to argue like the work-life balance or the lifestyle that the permanent remote work can give uh, that can be offered. So basically, if you take a look at the white-collar industry, like it's very demanding or it's very like competitive and can like really tire you out. 
So I think that because of like the permanent remote setting, it can give more autonomy for that person to enjoy their life. So like basically, if you take a look at the comparative, because like if they do opt into like physical work, like on nine to five, they work nine to five. They have to wake up early. They have to commute. They have to like work and probably go overtime and go home. They're probably tired. You're burnt out, and it's not going to be very helpful for their person. Or assuming they have a family. Like you don't have any friends aside from your workmates, so basically those are the things that the, that drag the quality of life of the person down. So I think that even if you concede that you don't have salary increase or like health insurance or paid leaves, but I think that on comparative, government can argue that you better your quality of life because if you take a look at a lot of the benefits coming from opposition, all of these are all of these benefits are monetary based. But you're just exchanging a lot of these benefits for a better quality of life that's not monetary in value because you now you have more mobility. You have now the flexible nature of remote work. You can be doing your chores or you can travel while you work. So, but secondly, I think that it's also interesting for government cigarette to also like play with the framing of like the aftermath of like cigarette like the COVID nineteen pandemic. Like I don't like running COVID nineteen pandemic frames, but like cigarette like this is relevant in the debate. Like because of like the aftermath of the pandemic, it really changed how we perceived work and productivity. Or like being able to live such uncertain times and everything is like so unpredictable. It's just justified to just not be on your office desk and being away with your loved ones and your passions. And you can basically enjoy your life, but what uh, at the same time earning. So basically, like government can go to the principle that you are more than your work and that you are able to enjoy your life better on government. So that's so that's for government. My question is, what would the alternative be for opposition? Because I think opposition can say like a lot of things. They can say, okay, you can choose to report to physical work, but you can also do a hybrid working setup. Right. So I think that opposition has room to argue a lot of different counterfactuals here. So I wanted to ask you, how would you or how would you enter the debate as opposition? Why do you think that that way that you would enter would be the most strategic way to do so? Mm. Okay, so I think the most strategic way to op- for opposition to enter is just like prove the, is this side the hardline stance that you need to go to physical work and like I don't think that the hybrid setup is like kind of strategic because I feel like it's kind of soft line eh because you're still able to like have the best of both worlds so I think like in order to have a greater debate the counterfactual must be. You need to do the physical work and then prove the benefits because I feel like a lot of like benefits and principal discussions can be more present in the in the counterfactual of like being able to fully work uh, physically. So, given that's the way you'd enter, very hard line. Like, how would you defend on opposition side that these benefits and uh, privileges are crucial? Like, even if government runs the COVID angle, right? Even if mm-hmm. you might physically get sick, why do you think that these benefits are still worth holding on to? Mm. Okay, so I think like an important characterization must be introduced in opposition that the white collar work is like a very competitive industry. So a lot of the trends right now is that tech and management industries usually replace their people often, like after three years because of new talent. And if you take a look at these industries, there's no really no assurance that you're able to survive in these particular industries, because especially in remote work because of like the proximity bias that's happening. And especially when you have new talent coming in every three years, or those who are like way w- more willing to do an extra job in a physical setting, you will easily be overshadowed. So even if like government can fiat that 
um, the person gets to earn like enough to get by. There's no fiat at all that they can choose. They are able to stay in that line of work, especially with a very competitive nature of these particular jobs. So that's why like benefits are better because at least you're still able to keep those particular um, benefits. So like proximity bias. Um, if you take a look at proximity bias, it's usually like how your boss or how your management ultimately sees you as being being very proactive or you're able to like hang out with them during lunch breaks or like whatever like uh, side activities. So these are things that are very crucial for you to be able to firstly probably climb the management ladder. So you have more uh, uh, great opportunities for you and your career. So that can be an argument why benefits are something that are that is worth it rather. But secondly, you're more likely to survive the competition because the industry because the industry that you're working in are very familiar with you. So basically, you're able to network with your boss, your office mates. So these are things that so basically these these are things that can be. Uh, seen that you're equally as valuable to the company. So I think that those are the things that are very important, especially in contextualizing why benefits are better. Um, also, I think that because of like the highly competitive nature of like white collar industries, and if like governments wants to argue like the COVID, um, the aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic, I think you can use that to oppos- to your advantage as opposition that because you're able to keep your job, you're able to likely adapt to the market economy. Because like if you take a look at like the recession, like very volatile young economy. So basically, if you don't have like any salary increase, there will be stagnant pay. So you're far more likely to be affected with the inflation or like the the recession. So especially like if you argue right now, the times are so uncertain that you need to be able to survive. So you need to be able to keep those benefits as much as possible, like healthcare, security. These are things that are super expensive that if you ever pay by yourself, your personal expenses will be much higher. Therefore, compromising probably your leisure, your passions, or etc. I guess at the end of the day, I think what we can conclude from this is the ideal world would give people the option to keep working from home but still have a lot of these work benefits as well. That being said, I think we can move on to the next and final motion for this motion set which is about micro, small, and medium enterprises. The motion reads, in times of economic recession, this house believes that developing countries should prioritize the development of local MSMEs. Again, so those are micro, small, medium enterprises as opposed to bailing out large-scale multinational corporations. So this is another motion about developing countries, prioritization, but this time there's another layer added to it, which is the fact that it's an economic recession. How would you generally characterize what an economic recession is or is like for a debate like this? Is there anything that government or opposition might want to emphasize as a part of their strategy? Mm. Okay, so basically, uh, the characterization of economic recession is like people lose work, companies make fewer sales, as like businesses see less demand, and ultimately, because of like fewer sales and like less demand, people be- begin to lose money and like the overall economic output of the country like basically declines, right? So I think that with that being said, and with that be- with that characterization, the debate then should be about where they are likely to recover from that economic recession. So for government, is to prove why the development of local MSMEs like or is better, and for opposition, prove why bailing out large multinational corporations is like 
better off in like being able to uh, get out of that economic recession or at least survive in that particular state. So it's about different strategies. And there are two different policies that are here. It's developing MSMEs and bailouts for large multinational corporations. How would you define or explain how each of those policies work, especially for our younger debaters that might be very confused about topics like this? Mm, I see. So basically for government, I think the first step for government is to be able to characterize who are these MSMEs. So um, basically, these are your local small convenience stores, your local restaurants, cafes, or etc. And usually, these uh, and like basically in definition by definition rather, the MSMEs are like literally the backbone of every economy. Like an example here is in the Philippines. Like, um, I did some like research from this. Like in the Philippines, like last 2020, like 99 points, like 99.6 percent of the nearly million businesses that exist here in the Philippines are MSMEs, and the rest are at large enterprises. So because like be- because that they constitute like literally nearly 100 percent, they are the economic lifeblood of countries, and the improve and like the employment rates or like the improvement like of the economic uh. They of like the overall economic uh environment of the state big or, or because of like MSMEs and usually how MSMEs work is that they have very limited cash flow so what money comes in usually goes out immediately so usually in times of recession businesses have to opt into financing to survive or at least operate. And in times of recession, the effect is always great that there's going to be unemployment, there are people going to be laid off, or like businesses will close down. So I think that the policy or like how government should be able to characterize this is that being able to prioritize the development of local MSMEs, it can be it can happen in like three areas. The government can prioritize by like supporting sales or preventing the depletion of like the of the money or the working capital of SMEs or being able to enhance their access to liquidity or like money or being able to uh, help SMEs to maintain their investment level so therefore they have uh, other like friendlier options like the government to be able to finance their operations so that's for government in terms of set up for opposition uh on the other hand for opposition they need to be able to characterize what bailing out means for the government so so basically bailing out means the government gives financial support to rescue in co- a company that is in financial trouble and possibly at risk for bankruptcy so ultimately bailing out only arises when there are industries that are crucial to the overall economy and therefore the government must intervene so like basically a relevant example of this is like the it's not the developing country but but i think like this is very um this is like uh, a clear example of how like bailing out works an example of this like in the us like after the 911 attack the airline industry was so affected that the government had to bail them out like 18.6 mil- billion dollars so basically the goal of bailing out is to always maintain regulation in the overall market of the economy and to for to avoid the further collapse of the financial system i think also for additional context for opposition when governments do bailouts, there will always be something in exchange. So the government does two things. Firstly, it can be like higher regulation and oversight of the company. But or secondly, and or 
Secondly, require them to restructure the company or basically like give time for these particular companies to restructure or like being able to reorganize their cap salaries or management for a time period. So I think like that's how the policy should look like in government and opposition. So, okay, it's good that you mentioned that bailouts can be conditional, like there are strings attached to it because I think that a lot of the time when you hear debates like this, a lot of the time teams just go like, yeah, you're going to let them free with no consequences. So I think it's good that opposition can point out that, well, even if we do bail out these corporations, it doesn't mean that we can't regulate them anymore. It doesn't mean that they don't have to change their behavior in any way. So I guess now we know in this motion, you can't have both. Because for motions like these, we're talking about spending money, taxpayers' money. You can't have too many policies at the same time because you don't have that much money to go around, right? So there's going to be the issue of which allocation of resources would be more strategic for economic recovery. And in that issue, I wanted to ask, what do you think the arguments for government and opposition would be? Mm. Okay, for I think for government, like being able to prioritize MSMEs, I think one of the major uh, major arguments that they can provide is that because of like how MSMEs are the backbone of the of the like the states, like literally they are the ninety nine point something percent of like the overall economy. So there is a need to prioritize them because like if you take a look at the nature of MSMEs, it's already difficult for them to downsize as they are already small to begin with. So in an, in a re- uh, an, a, an economic recession rather, if you're going to assume that they're going to downsize even more, I think like that's sometimes impossible to the brink that they have to close down. But secondly, they're individually less diversified in their economic activities, which means that they already have like a weak financial structure, they have low capitalization or like whatever money comes in usually comes out immediately so therefore if there are less demand from individuals it's usually very hard for them to be able to sustain sustain their companies because like they have lower or no credit rating or they have heavily dependent or they are heavily dependent rather on credit that they have fewer financing options. So given like, I think for the general strategy or for the print uh, or the greater principle for government rather, because they are so big or that they are like, they consist like the majority of the economy, of like the economy. And that this is like on an era, in an era rather of like an economic recession, there is urgency and vulnerability to MSMEs. Therefore, there is a need to prioritize them to be able to like uh, rebuild back the economy. And I also think that the counter should be important that if you take a look at like large corporations, like in comparison with um, MSMEs, large corporations usually have like very great working capital. So if you take a look at in the context of like economic recessions, they're far more likely to survive recessions because like they have great greater credit, they have like greater capital to begin with. So I think that's like the greater principle for government. As opposed to opposition, I think the strategy or like the strategy for opposition is that the context is that they, we are already in an economic recession. So everything is in shambles and everything is like very vulnerable. And if you take a look at prior to the economic recession, and I think this is where opposition has a strategy, they can characterize that MSMEs will always be unstable because of the lack of resources. Like the fact that government or like government says that they are like, yeah, they they are the small uh, convenience stores or like the local restaurants or whatever, and they have limited capital, which means that these like these MSMEs will always be unstable because of the lack of resources. And it worsens in an economic recession. 
So I think that it's very important for opposition to go back to the goal because if the goal of this debate is stability, opposition can argue that it's very hard for MSMEs to be stable, especially when the economic environment is far more vulnerable than ever. So there can be comparison that prior to like the economic recession, MSMEs in nature are already unstable. How much more in an economic recession? So I think that given that the goal is stability, opposition can argue that you need to put your resources in industries that are already assured to be stable to begin with. So those are the large corporations. So I think that it's important for opposition also to characterize that prior the, prior to the recessions, these particular large industries are already con- are already stable and have been contributing a lot to the country. So I think that the greater principle or like the greater like strategy rather for opposition is to argue the process of reviving economies, like investing in SMEs is important, but that's not the priority right now. Right. Thank you so much for those arguments as well as an insight on how MSMEs work, how bailouts work and things like that. So I think useful information, especially for other debates, because these are topics we encounter all of the time. So thanks as well for all the three motions. So um, before we end, though, we have one final question. Um, usually in our segments like this, we have a portion where we ask our guests what advice they would give for novice debaters. So I'd like to ask you what novice uh, advice you'd have, especially for people who might be intimidated by economics topics. I think that at some point for novices, um, intimidation is natural and that being able to like uh, overcome like uh, force, I know rather like fourths or like losses in rounds is something that's natural to the growing process. And I think that for novices, what's important is that they embrace, like, figure like they embrace the intimidate, like the the intimidation that surrounds like the econ motions, and like just put them themselves out there, because ultimately they can learn a lot in terms of being able to hear from different arguments from different speakers. And yeah, I think that even despite that there's like different people that might like that are aiming for the first in that particular round. Or like that has like more knowledge or far more experienced debaters you're gonna face in those particular rounds, especially in economic rounds. I think that's what's important is that you really have, you just have to accept these inevitabilities and as much as possible learn from those like things that, uh, learn from those, uh, from those particular debate rounds and move forward from there. Because ultimately like debating is something that is a constant learning process. So without like without trying or without like actively trying to put yourself in part in particular rounds or being able to face like probably like the dinosaurs, um, it's something that you really have. It's you cannot like really move forward with that kind of mindset. Yeah. So that's it for this episode of Debatable and in general this post debate analysis. We hope that you guys learned a lot. We certainly did. Mina and I. Uh, we'll see you in the next one. Bye. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you and bye bye. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs>